Welcome, everybody. We're back to uh, the podcast, Unprofoundly Chill. I'm your host, Joe Navarro. My guest today is one of my favorites in Houston, Jerry Wayne Longmire. Hey, what's up, Bob? What's up, man? How you been? Good, good, man. Dude, I can't complain. Everything just keeps getting better. How long have you been doing comedy? Well, I started... I started in 2004, February 2004, at the Laugh Stop, and uh, it's like a, and things went really well for me right off the bat. I was very fortunate. I got uh, second place in Houston's Funniest Person that year. Your first year uh, doing comedy? Yeah. Like, man, it's like a couple months in, a month in maybe, uh, I joined that contest and Got second place, and it was really good for me because all of a sudden everybody knew who I was, and I was getting asked to do other shows and stuff, and uh, made some really cool friends. The person who won that contest was Sarah Tolomash that year. And, oh, uh, really? Yeah, and the person uh, coming in third place was uh, was a really funny dude named Harris Whittles, who went on to become a writer for Parks and Rec and all that shit. Fortunately, he died a few years ago. We lost him. Uh, but... <clears throat> So I was surrounded by all these really immensely talented, really funny people, and they were throwing me shows and shit. So it went really well for me, and then I kind of just like jumped off into doing it full time and hit the road and did it pretty hardcore for I don't know. It was probably like oh eight oh nine when uh, the Laugh Stop closed down. Things kind of. I had met my wife uh, was the general manager of the Laugh Stop. That's how I met her and. Uh, we moved a little farther north of town, and I was still doing comedy and stuff. And then, uh, right about the time my mom died, which was like 2013, it kind of fucked me up really good. And I, I just, I just quit doing comedy. I just, I don't know. I had little kids, and I had a business I had just started, and I was just, it was just all too much. And uh, I was going through this thing that I was pretty. My wife says that when my mom died, I kind of like just went on autopilot for a couple of years where I was just, I just, there was no joy in anything. I just got up, went to work, came home, went to sleep, kind of shit. And uh, it's funny because I've been through something like that when I was younger. Yeah. Like I went through autopilot for a couple of years. Like I just was living my life. I wasn't enjoying it. Well, you just live. Yeah, you I just, just exist. Just you doing just, it. Yeah, you don't know what else to do, but just keep going. It's yeah. just you know, but it's hard to find the good. And yeah, it's a weird time. And uh, then so, it was like 2017. I came back and started. Came to the open mics and started kind of just started over. I was just like, fuck it, man. I started coming to Darwin's and. Well, what got you out of that funk? Were you just like striving to do comedy again? You got the itch and you're just like, I need to get back on stage or? Uh, I always sort of planned. So my plan was always to come back. It was always like, my plan was like, oh, I just need to make enough money in my business to buy my freedom. Because <laughs> I, I had a wife and kids and, you know, those are different responsibilities. And I was like, I just want to be able to, you know, have my bills paid and then come back. And, and be good. Because you're not going to make money. You know, that's not what, that's not why you do comedy is not to make money. I mean, yeah, there's money in it and you can make money, but it's it's not the, especially not starting out, it's not the impetus. Um, well, that's a lot of what a lot of people don't understand because I'm pretty sure like uh, younger dudes when they come in the game, they're like, oh, I can, if I do get good, I can go up to New York or L.A. and start making some money and this and that. And it's like, nah, that's not how it works. There's a whole bunch of motherfuckers in New York and L.A. <laughs> making no money, you know. Yeah. That's why everybody's, you know, there's dudes in L.A. that have, like, national commercials and a Comedy Central special and four fucking roommates. I mean, yeah. it's like, 
That shit, that, those places eat your fucking lunch. They ain't no joke. You know what I mean? It's not for the timid or the maybes. That's a... I fucked around a little bit in New York, and it's a, and I'm, I've been out to L.A. a handful of times doing stuff. But as far as coming back, it was a... This is, this is going to sound dumb, but I was always I was always wanting to come back. And I finally realized after many years of being in business uh, that <laughs> you never make enough money to buy your freedom, that that's a fucking myth in this goddamn <laughs> country. And you just have to decide what you're okay with. And uh, me and Rachel were managing our money pretty well and stuff. And um, I was... I was going to get out of the business. I wasn't really enjoying what I was doing. It was just something I was good at. and But I was doing these business network meetings, like, and I was running these business network groups. And I was fucking killing the room at 11 a.m. in a golden corral in front of a room full of fucking sober people. And I was like, why am I, what the fuck am I doing this for? And it was giving me that, you know, that, like, this is that thing you love doing, but this sucks. Don't do it this way. Don't yeah. do it in front of the moldy strawberries at the golden corral. Do it in front of drunk people, you know, like <laughs> any other self-respect. At nine o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so I told Rachel, and I know you've heard the bit that I wrote about my mother dying and stuff like that. Yeah. I had written that bit and I said, this is going to be my litmus. If I can make, this is like the worst day of my life. And if I can make this funny, then this is going to be my litmus. This is going to make the decision for me. And so I started working on that bit, and I started coming down to, uh, not Rudyard's, Darwin's. Uh-huh. Ryan Darwin's joint over there on Wall Road. I started coming down there and doing that open mic on Wednesday nights and was having a great time. Felt the bug again, was feeling, you know. And I, I'm glad. I've seen a lot of, you don't see a lot of people come back to comedy. But the few that I've seen try, they, they try to call in favors from their friends and they try to get like paid gigs and stuff. Yeah. I'm glad I did it the way I did it, where I just came back and I didn't really talk to anybody. And the scene was so fresh or so many new faces I didn't know. I was able to just kind of just start over. Just work and, on your uh, craft. Yeah. And it was, I'm really, really fortunate I had the ability to do that. Uh, because I think it put me in a better position that when the few people that did know me were like, Oh shit, you're back around. Let's get you working, you know? And yeah, but like you said, you worked your way back up to it. Mm -hmm. And with some people, when they just come back, they're like, Oh, I'm back. Oh, let me put you on a show. And then they bomb because they haven't done it for so long. I saw a friend of mine, you know, guy that I love to death. Think the world of him. He left comedy for a long time, probably five or six years. Which everybody found out during the pandemic how hard it is when you haven't been on stage in a while, and and this dude oh, yeah. was gone like five or six years, and same thing come back and he was hitting me up asking me questions about how I came back, and I told him what I just told you and he didn't like that answer, so he got another friend to take him on a gig featured for him and that's the only gig he's done you know, <laughs> like so, and I don't know what happened there but uh, pretty sure he didn't fucking mop the floor with the room. Do we know what happened? <laughs> we know. <laughs> That's a crazy thing. I mean, so how do you feel? How did you feel before you left? And then now that you're back, like uh, there's a change in you, right? Like with your style, with your jokes, with the way you perform on stage, you're a different person now. Yeah. I, um, so when I started out, I was pretty young and I was in a lot of drugging and the drinking and it was just Uh a lot of that had become my core personality on stage. And that was a lot of my frustration when, 
uh, towards those later years, right when my mom died, I, I was having a hard time breaking free of that. It's like these old radio DJs you see still stuck in their same shtick for... I, I, I felt that way. I felt stagnant and I felt insincere because I really wasn't that guy anymore. I was becoming a family man. Yeah. And, and so when I came back this time, it was like, I, I have to just kind of write. I have to write in a way that's going to allow me to evolve. And I've even changed a lot since I've been back. And it's, uh, I've been very fortunate that I, I came back with that mindset. Like you have to write these jokes. That's fine. But know that they're going to change and you're going to change the way you feel about them. And that's just from that's just from having been through it, you yeah, know, and understanding how it works. I mean, well, it sounds like you were on autopilot not just in life, but also on stage as well. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely for a minute there. Yeah, I was just doing my my shtick, you know, <laughs> redneck shit, and uh, it worked. People liked it, you know. I was getting laughs. I was doing well, but I wasn't. Uh, I was. It's not what I got in comedy for, you know. No. So that's what I'm going through right now. It's like I know what makes people laugh. I know what kind of shtick that I can I can pull. But like, I, I hate it because I would rather do some more thoughtful uh, jokes, some stuff that I actually like worked really hard on to get a misdirection or a really good premise or whatever. But sometimes when I get tell them on stage, people don't want that. They just want the easier stuff. <laughs> like it happened uh, last well, you Sunday. Gotta, you got to teach them. You got to teach that's, them how to want what you do. That's the thing. I haven't figured that out yet. I haven't figured out how to teach them. I'm still trying to get in there, you yeah. know? That's and and a lot of thing. it's having the, uh, having the courage and the wherewithal to plant your feet and say, I'm going to do the things that I want to do. Um, you know, I do like TikTok shit, right? Mm-hmm. And... <clears throat> I've been very blessed there. I've got a bunch of TikTok shit went really viral, but a lot of it's not stuff I like doing. Uh, like I was doing all the like the boots and trucks things, and I they're they're funny and they're okay, but they don't test my comedic ability, and they're they're not like something that I strive like I want to get up and film one of those. And then lately, I've been doing these like uh, three character skit sketches about my father, my grandfather, and my uncle, and doing these characters and stuff. And I love that shit so much more. It's like a nostalgic thing for me. And I like the feedback. I like people that relate to it. And I like, I like, you know, I just like the overall feeling it gives me to make those. But they don't go viral yet, you know. I got one got really close. Got like uh, 860,000 views, you know. Nice. And the rest of them are like anywhere from 40,000 views to 400,000 views. And somebody's like, well, yeah, but you didn't do these. Like, no, I'm just doing the shit that I want to do. Because when people come out and see me, I want them to see, um, I want them to see me. I want them to see somebody who's like really comfortable doing what they do and really enjoys the art they create. And uh, yeah, because you don't want somebody coming to your show, you doing the stuff that you want to do, and them going, do the redneck stuff. Yeah, yeah, or do the boots and trucks. And, I, and yeah. like, I just don't, I don't want that to be the misnomer. I've seen. There's too many comics who found some sort of gimmick at some point, and it ended up taking over their whole fucking career. Yeah. Uh, Larry the Cable Guy, whose name's Dan Whitney. Yep. Dan Whitney, an incredibly talented one-liner comic. Really talented. Really talented. You watch, he was 18 years in the business. He's he's really funny comic. He's really hard-working, funny comic. But he is Larry the Cable Guy the rest of his life, and he seems okay with that. You know what I mean? It's made him a, you know. Millionaire. <laughs> $4.6 million might change my mind about boots and trucks. All right. I might just be like, I'm a boots and trucks guy. Four, $4.6 million. And we will all sell out at some point, you oh, know. Yeah. Uh, 
and he's you know he's sitting on the fifty yard line at the Nebraska Cornhuskers game and having a great time and living his best life. But I'm sure there's times, and I've heard Jeff Foxworthy talk about. Um, uh, you know, I don't want to be a redneck, but I love Southern comedy. And uh, and I've heard Jeff Foxworth. Jeff Foxworth is an incredible, talented comedian, obviously. Oh, yeah. But I've heard him talk about, you know, there's times he wished he hadn't Done come that. up that, that yeah. you might be a redneck shit. And, and Billy Ingvall felt the same way about here's your sign. You know, he's off trying to be an actor and shit. Cause, so I, I can see how one of those things can take over you. You can become a part of it. And you can ride the wave, but then it can take over and you get put in, in this hole mm-hmm. and you can't get out of it. And like every time somebody sees you, they just see you as that. Yeah. And like character actors and stuff, you know, they just get, once you start playing a villain all the time, everybody's like, oh, he makes a great fucking villain. And then you're a exactly. villain from yeah. their own out. Exactly. You know? I've heard it happens with uh, comics too. It's like within being a writer and a performer. It's like, oh, you're a great writer, but I, I perform too. Yeah, yeah. I, I told these jokes. I was like, oh, well, well, your writing's good though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, you, you do. You definitely see that, and um, you know, and even the guys that are like, oh, I'm a dark comic. Like, we well, don't just be a comic. You know, I mean, if your comedy's dark, that's okay. But don't, you know, the best dark comic I ever knew did not tell anybody they were a dark comic. They were just a comic, and they just happened to be very dark. <laughs> yeah, with their humor. Um, you don't have to. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself to anything. You can just you can just be a comic and then let everything else sort itself out and figure out where it's going to go. People are always going to put me. I used to really get upset when people call me like a redneck comic, all that kind of shit. But it's uh, it's the voice. I you know, guess, I mean, it's exactly. like, you know, like like <laughs> I I could I could be talking about you know fucking anything you know or you know I could be talking about Socrates <laughs> and you're gonna be like oh I love that redneck dude you could be talking hilarious. rocket science <laughs> yeah you could be a NASA astronaut and still <laughs> it would just <laughs> yeah so it's like I, nowadays I don't get all upset about that I uh, I just kind of roll with it I'm just like yeah okay cool whatever man you know like uh, just. The, that's your perception of what the situation is. That's fine, but I'm to me, I'm just comic. You yeah. just you, you just you. Yeah, just comic. I just. I, I mean, just that's like that, that's the biggest thing about your stand up too, is because like I don't see you as a redneck comic. I see you as a comic because I see where you put your life into it and where you exaggerate to your premises, the punchlines, the setup. But it's also very personal. Yeah, the, like, the stuff you've been doing recently very personal, like the stuff about your mom, the stuff about your kids, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just got a special out recently. Yeah, yeah, we recorded it uh, July eighth uh, last year on my birthday at the Secret Group, and um, then you know about four or five months of production work on it, and dropped it in November, and uh, I just signed a distribution deal for it. The ink's dry on that, and uh, they're gonna put it on like. 40 streaming services and uh we're gonna do some audio stuff with it but it's not it's not okay you know it's got like 4600 views on youtube and i i had like 20 subscribers when we dropped it and i'm at like 890 now so it's you know it's it's done a little bit of work that's originally why i started doing tiktok stuff was to drive traffic to go look at the special i would make these little videos and be yeah. like, Hey, if you like this, go check out my special. And it was just solely as a vehicle to drive traffic. And then I started making money off TikTok. and was like, well, fuck, I got to take this seriously. Now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, but it's working now. I've seen the videos that you do on TikTok. They're hilarious. Thank you, man. They're hilarious. But it's also because you're so funny that you're getting so much traffic and they're hitting, they're becoming viral and stuff like that. Because if, if you were just doing regular videos and you weren't really trying, nobody would be watching them. Yeah, it's... um. So TikTok is a fun social media platform because every video is judged by that video. So it doesn't matter how many followers you have. I can drop a stinker that'll get a thousand views and die. And nobody will. And I've had, you can go in there and look at my page. You'll find one that's got maybe 2,000 views that nobody gave a fuck about. It's judged per video. So every video, when you drop it, whether it hits a FYP and starts getting recirculated, depends uh-huh. on just people scrolling through and if you catch their attention in the first couple seconds. So you have to, um, me and Slade Ham, you know, me and him do the Whiskey Brothers. He, so he's the guy who, who like taught me a lot about editing video and stuff. Uh, when I first started working with the Whiskey Brothers a year or two ago, I had an interest in learning this kind of stuff and I knew nothing about it. And he started teaching me this stuff and he has this, he has this uh, sort of like mindset about doing things with intent. And that's how he approaches comedy and that's how he approaches like writing books and that's how... He, He's like, it's it's a lot different. He's there's a whole lot of people just making shit and throwing shit against the wall, right? And at least you're still making stuff, right? Yes. But he was talking about making things with intent. Waking up, sitting down, and going, this is what I want to do today, and doing it. And then, like, okay, so if it's still not good, then figure out why it's not good and keep working on I started approaching that stuff with that, the uh, and I was following... Uh, there's a content creator coach I really like. His name's Ken, the content creator coach. He's on TikTok and YouTube and stuff. So I was listening to some of his videos on the way home from a gig in Dallas. And I got up the next day and was like, all right, I'm going to make stuff with intent. And I got my first viral video that day. That video I made that day was my first viral video. And it went like 3 million views. And I no was like, kidding. okay, so there's something to this. There's something to <laughs> operating with this mindset of I'm trying to get from here to here. And this is the vehicle I want to use to do that. And so for me, those vehicles are stand up and, you know, also the little sketches and stuff. And I've got some ideas for some longer shows that I'm going to create. Uh, I've been blessed recently in that me and my wife are taking over this like two acre property right here in the north side of Houston that we're going to move into his old house built in like 1941 by her great grandfather. And it's got like a big ass two car garage out there and I'm cleaning it out right now. So I'm going to build a full sound studio on one side of the garage. And then the other side of the garage is going to be my workshop, but also lit and built for filming things. So, and I've got a couple ideas in the can that a little more long form type shit, you know, 15, 20 minute episodes. Okay. That we're going to make in there and got a really the director for the whiskey brothers adam taylor who he directs a lot of stuff he uh very instrumental in getting my special filmed and get me the right cameras and all that kind of stuff um he's going to help me film a lot of that of course i guarantee you slade ham will be involved too because he he's kind of like uh he's like one of my favorite people to make shit with you know so how hard was it to make a special it was a lot of work <laughs> it was a I would tell you that well first of all you got you got material that you know probably 14 15 years in the making a uh, true creation wise of course cuz uh, that's that's what I hear from most comics is like oh once you hit the 10 year mark 
your first special is everything you've done up until that point. Yeah, all the best it's, stuff. It's the story. It's yeah. the that's I had this idea in my head for this special that I wanted to dedicate to my mother that was just it just told the story of how I got like this and you know how I got there. And so that's the way that special and the material in it was designed. And so there's of course all that. Then there's the prep for it, you know, going up to it. I was doing every long set I could do anywhere I could do it just to run through it. I remember. Get it in my head. I, I, I was doing it everywhere. <laughs> you know, everywhere I could get a long set, I was running through that material and doing it just to get used to the idea of putting it all together that way. And even the night the night of, I added a 10-minute fucking bit to that special that I'd never done on stage before. <laughs> and I thought Slade was going to fucking kill me. <laughs> He's going to be like, what is he doing? This is a part of it. Because <laughs> he was looking, because I had a set list and I like laminated it and stuck it on the stool just so I'd have a little cheat in case if I ever, you know, got a little off the case. Yeah. And, uh, I remember he was looking at that set list. And he's like, "What's this? What's this Adderall story? What the fuck's that?" And I was like, "Oh, it's just." I said, "You remember that story? I was telling you about my father-in-law and the Adderall." And he's like, "Have you ever done it on stage?" I was like, "No, no, but I'm gonna do it tonight. It's gonna be good." He's like, God damn it, Jerry! <laughs> and, uh, it worked out. Yeah, yeah, it worked out. It's, it's one of my most popular bits on Reddit. So it's like Reddit's like weird. People like long form shit on Reddit. And so that well, it's, bit a, it's that same idea destroyed. again. I was like, I, I'm going to do this today. I'm choosing to do this today. I'm yeah. going to do it. I, I just, feel like it's going to work. I told this. I had never told anybody the story. And so me and Slade and another friend of ours had been sitting over his house. And I just told them this story about the first time I did Adderall. And they were crying, laughing. I was like, man, why haven't you ever done that on stage? And Slade's like, yeah, you already do that on stage. I don't think he meant the next fucking night. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> but uh, I was just like, ah, fuck, it'll be fine. You know, it's, it's my crowd. And um, we, of course, then we had to rent all the cameras and, you know, deal with the venue owners, with Andrew and them, and kind of get all that set up and promote it. And it was kind of close towards, I mean, there was still like, so the first time we planned on doing it was 2020 and we had to cancel it because of pandemic shit. Uh -huh. was, remember the club had opened up for a little while. We were going to do it. And then the club had to close back down. We had to cancel it again. And so then even on the heels of that, the next year, it was really hard to promote because people just still weren't leaving their house and doing shit really a whole lot yet. And um, so See, there, I, I think you... It was perfect. It was a perfect time because uh, I don't know if you know Mark Norman, Sam Marill, Joe List. They put out specials on YouTube and they hit big because the only thing people could do would just stay at home and be on the Internet. Yeah. 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 It there was, was perfect. A lot of that. There was a lot of those. I didn't see Joe List. Um, I think he's very funny, but it's not necessarily my brand of what I really get into. But yeah, I don't self-deprecating, yeah. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't watch a lot of comics anymore. I used to, but you kind of get jaded. You don't do it as much. I did, um, as much as I don't agree all the time with who the dude is as a person, uh, what's that guy, Shane? Gillis? Yeah. I watched his special and laughed my ass off. That shit was pretty funny. That dude. Uh, yeah, that was a good special. Yeah, I really enjoyed the shit out of it. I don't, I don't, yeah. you know, I don't have... I'm not here to offer an opinion on him or the SNL thing or any of that, but that special was fucking funny. And uh, yeah. I didn't feel like there was anything problematic in there. 
not to be in my senses anyways. You know, everybody's got a different perspective. But aside from that, you so you have to, you know, I had to rent all those cameras and there was a bunch of money out. And um, then I had to get camera operators. Luckily, we got some guys on the scene, uh, J.K. Spindler, mm-hmm. who's a film kid. And he operated one of the cameras. And then Adam Taylor ran one of the cameras. And Slade Ham ran one of the cameras for me. And pretty much the night of the show, Slade sort of uh, was at the helm of the boat directing everything for me so that I could just be in the green room, prepare for what I was about to do. And of course I had, you know, I had Will Loden and Antonio and mm-hmm. uh, Jesse Payton as support comics, which was a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> Will Loden's probably one of my favorite comedians in the city. He's so. great. I love him. And uh, Antonio's a, you know, he's right up there. Will Antonio makes me fucking laugh. He's every time so he gets funny. That's why I don't like watching <laughs> comics on TV because it's to me it's more about the live experience. I love Yes. I would rather go see any of my friends do comedy than anybody that's on TV. I would uh Jeff Joe. I watch Jeff Joe anytime I'm in an opportunity where I get to see Jeff Joe perform, I'm gonna watch that dude. I, Jesse Saldana, yeah. Nathaniel Amador. Yep. Um I really enjoyed Kate Vance. Uh, Grace Kirk used to make me. Grace Kirk has made me laugh harder than probably any other human being on this planet. <laughs> that, that, that girl, I love her. That girl fucking really funny. Well, with uh, Jeff Joe, I see him every Monday. I, I do Axelrod. I host and I open up oh, for nice. him. So <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. Like every time he's on stage, he's saying something that will make me laugh. Oh, it's, it's Jeff, great. Jeff's murderer's row, man. I yeah. love Jeff. Jeff's amazing. Yeah, they, uh, Abby Vallman's she she uh, she's one that's kind of new for me. I just started doing mm-hmm. stuff with her a while back, but I put her on my improv show, and she hosted. She cold opened that thing and beat the shit out of that crowd for ten minutes, and it was a beautiful thing to watch. I mean, that girl put in work. Damn, that's Very awesome. funny. Very yeah. funny. Yeah, she's a hard worker. She's been. She goes out. She she she's doing her thing. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, she That's shows. Awesome. She's one of those uh, that shows up with intent. So mm-hmm. she's done. Um, me and her do these sketches about Southern boss going to the HR or whatever, and she always plays the HR lady for me, and we collaborate on those and make those together. And man, she always shows up on time. She's ready to film. She's ready to get some, make some cool art, and um, I, she's just very easy to work with. I'm a big fan of what she does. If you ask her to write for something, she will write for it. She will show up with notes and shit and ready okay. to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kate Vance, same way, though. We we had Kate Vance on Ido, and she's the same way. Every time she showed up with a notebook full of shit, ready to rock and roll, you know? Um, so, so when you were during the show for your special, were you nervous? Oh, I, um, I, I get anxiety, um, I, it, it's a weird. It's not like stage fright or anything like that. I don't really have any issues with that. But I get anxiety about things I've built up too hard in my head, and usually before a big show or a show that matters, it's it's the car ride on the way to the club. It's I have to listen to the right kind of music, or I have to go in the green room and listen to the right kind of music. I need like some Counting Crows or some shit to fuck kind of bring me down and. You got to get your mindset. Yeah, yeah. kind of, uh, usually some kind of sad music or something's like really nice, something like emotional that'll kind of get me centered and feeling about the way I need to feel before I get up there. So a lot of anxiety uh, pre to that. In fact, it was real funny. I had a copy of my set list and I, and I was just 
reading it over and over again, reading it over and over again. And I was and I wasn't even in the green room because I wanted to watch Will and Antonio, so I was sitting <laughs> behind the curtains back there, yeah, with my little set list and reading it over and over again. And my wife is very cool; she's been with me almost since I started comedy, and she knows comedy. She was a talent buyer for a long time, and she knows that I just need a minute to myself, you yep. know, when those bumps come. So she was like sitting by Slade, kind of watching them. And I'm just watching them through a crack in the curtains. I'm watching Antonio and Will do this job and kick this crowd's ass. And I'm reading over the set list. And Adam Taylor, who I just adore Adam Taylor, but Adam Taylor just walks by. He grabs that set list out of my hand, wads it up, throws it in the trash. <laughs> he goes, you're going to forget everything on that piece of paper if you keep staring at it. And I was like, I was like, I was really thankful he did that because the minute he walked off, I relaxed. I mean, I did go get it out of the trash and unwind it, but <laughs> but I quit reading it. I, but I did go get it out of the trash. Like, I still need this. You don't tell me what to do, motherfucker. It's my goddamn special. And I started it out, and I was like, oh, he's right. I didn't stop looking at that motherfucker. And uh, but all that goes away the minute you hit that step. The minute you get that mic in your hand, all that shit goes away, and then it's just. Then it's just the beauty of stand-up, which is this thing to me that's kind of like almost drowning, you know, because you're just, you're engulfed in the emotion and the feeling of the crowd and the feedback from them and whether that's good or bad, but it's like, it's like, it's like almost drowning. It's like just floating in the water and you got to, you got to fucking make it or not. And you got to figure out how to ride that wave and work your way through it. And yeah. So once I hit that stage of it, nothing, none of the rest of that shit matters. I'm not thinking about bills. I'm not thinking about anything that's got to happen tomorrow. I'm just thinking about how to get that next laugh, how to get that next laugh, how to walk into this next joke, how to respond to this live actual event that's happening. You know, why is this motherfucker not laughing? That kind of shit. You're (laughs) in the moment. You're in it. You're in it. You're there. Yeah, it's the most present you can ever be. For me, it's the most present because I'm not a, I'm, I'm real. I'm one of those people that has to remind myself constantly to be present in the moment because I'm a worrier. I'm one of those people that's always worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm worrying what, about some shit that happened yesterday. And, you know, somebody talked to me in the elevator three weeks ago and I said something stupid in reply and I can't stop thinking about that shit. You know, I look like a fucking dork. Now my neighbor thinks I'm a fucking dork. And, uh, just, you know, I'm, I'm just one of those people. I, I have some anxiety like that. So it's, uh, it's it's the perfect moment for me because I'm very present in the moment. Like like I'm going to take my kids to the pool today, me and the kids and Mama are going to go swimming. And at some point in the pool, I will have to remind myself to be present because these days are going to run away very soon. Yeah. My, my, my oldest is twelve. My youngest is about to be ten. I mean, what are, what I got five, six more years of them wanting to go to the pool with me? You know, like yeah. I have to be present and be in it. It seems like a long time when you're going through it, but Fuck, I don't know how that oldest one got 12, to be honest with you. Cause it seems like I just drove them home from the hospital not too long ago. So I have to I have to force myself to, like, don't be thinking about sketches. Don't be thinking about this. Don't be thinking about what bills you got to pay. Just, yeah. just be here. Be you know? dad. But stand-up is the only time I don't have to do that because stand-up just... When you're there, you're there, and you just got to ride that wave and live it, you know. It's a, it's a be- it's the most beautiful feeling in the world, you know. You I know. know. It's fucking... <laughs> It don't matter if it's avant-garde in front of fucking five people or the improv in front of 300 people. It's They're just different kind of lakes, and you got to figure out how to swim through that son of a bitch. And uh, 
God, they're, they're a beautiful moment. I look forward to play. I was really uh, sad when I heard Avant Garde had shut down. Me too. Because though I don't like all the venues in Houston, like small venues and stuff, that one was always a lot of fun. And I'm really glad they're doing some shit with it again. I think uh, Rich Williams is the one that's running it now. Yeah, me yeah. and him did a road gig together recently. He's like, do you have any interest in doing it? I was like, fuck yeah. So he's like, well, I'm probably going to come out there in about a month, maybe do a show there. I, I love that room so much. I mean, the acoustics are kind of weird, but when it's good, it's good. Yeah. That's 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 the biggest thing about that room. I've been there when there was five people in the room and seven comics and Scotty Peterson had been on stage for 20 minutes, hammered drunk, yelling at people. <laughs> and had to follow that. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it was like his birthday or some shit. I, and I love Scotty. I adore yeah, him. But, you great. know, uh, and then I, I've been there when that little room's had 40 people packed into it. Same. And it's Thunderdome, yeah. you know, and it, it's a, it's a fucking, but it's, I've never had a bad time there. I've never, I've never gone to do avant-garde and come home pissed off. I did it. Um, and so that, that's a lot. There's not a lot of venues like that, that always feel good, no matter how many people are there. Um, but that's one that always feels really good to be, I, uh, Axelrad, I've always had a good time at Axelrad. I've only done Axelrad maybe three or four times, but Jeff's always been really kind about anytime I wanted to work some shit out, let me come out there and. I just don't really do it that much because it's Monday night. That's Whiskey Brothers night. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> that's a fun little room. I like that shotgun design of that room, just that long, narrow. It it feels like church to me, and I grew up in the apostolic, like very Holy Ghost-style churches, and that's the way it feels to me. It's just this long room with pews. And- yeah, I've never heard it described like that, but it does make sense. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, I can see oh, yeah. that. I always feel like a preacher when I'm on stage at Axelrod. <laughs> I feel like, fuck it, here we go. This is Brother Jerry Wayne's Traveling Salvation Show. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, like, I like that room. It's a great... Oh, they got a... Uh, so they're having a monthly show there now on Fridays. It's called Punchline Fridays. Oh, so, very cool. Yeah. I think it's at the end of the month. Either the, the start of the month or the end of the month, but it's, Man, it's one he, of those. Well, Jeff has done a great job at that room. Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. Every time I go there, it's always great. The crowds are fun. You know, you can just fuck around, do what you want. You'll always have a good time. Yeah, and it, it's always, um, it's kind of like a young college crowd, which has always been kind of a tough demographic for me. So that's a good point. Uh, I feel like the reason is... Because of TikTok, because he's he's so big on TikTok, and they see him, and they, ah. he's you know advertising on there, and they come and watch him because they're like, oh shit, that's the guy from TikTok. Ah, that's cool. But I like it because that's a crowd that's always been a challenge for me to connect with. I didn't go to college. I'm not, you know, I went straight from uh, high school to work. You know, <laughs> I yeah. was one of those dudes. I went to work in the oil field straight out of high school, and so I never had that experience, and I've always had a hard time with bonding from people that are going through. So. It, I like that room. It, it gives me a chance to work some shit out. And they're always really receptive to it, too. Um, I, I'm only done his other room. What does he have? That brass tap room? Brass tap. That's the open mic. That one. Yeah. Handful of times. But it's just so... Those concrete walls, man. It's so Center tall, block yeah. walls and being... the the. I mean, unless they, like, hang some banners or some shit up in there to stop the sound, you know? <laughs> yeah. Because if you get about 20 feet away from the stage, I I have bad, I have a blowed out ear, so I've got bad hearing anyways. When I get about 20 feet away from the stage, I can't hear anybody on stage. I can't oh. understand them, you know? Well, it's different now. It's no longer on the stage. What he did was he got the tables and he put them in a circle, 
Oh. And the comic performs in the middle. Very cool. That's a that's a good approach to. Yeah, it's a different. Or, sometimes feeling. you got to change shit up for your environment. You know, it's it's difficult. Uh, I don't know if you ever done that Lake Jackson room down there, that winery or whatever. Yes. Like that's I fun bet. as far as an outdoor thing goes, but the, the thing about that outdoor room is there's no travel back on the laughter. There's it just boom, it's out and it's gone. Exactly. You know? And there's no momentum. You know, I mean, you can kind of get them going, but there's it's not like when you're. Um, if you get them going at Rudyard's, you know, with them low ceilings and that hard back room, and you get them going, you start getting that laughter coming back and bouncing back, and that, I mean, it, it gets thunderous in there. Yeah. Uh, those are the rooms I like doing. The box at Secret? That box is excellent. Fucking, yeah. Yeah. Box, you can bounce them off the back wall all day long. Works great. Yeah, those are the best rooms. The last stop open mic was great, the old lounge on West Grave, because it was like nine-foot ceilings, and then the bar was at the back of the room, and there was just it was just this short, low, squatty room with a medium-sized stage. and Even the showroom in the last stop, the ceiling wasn't that much higher, and it held about 200, 250 people in there. But when you were on that stage in the laugh stop at, at West Gray, uh, it was like a plywood stage underneath all the covering and everything. When that room was full and you had them going, you could feel that stage vibrate from really? all the sound in there at stage. You could feel it vibrate and rumble under your feet. And oh, it's it probably a great feeling. Oh yeah, that's when you knew you had them. You're just beating on them. You know, you just, I got your ass now, man. I'll make somebody throw up. Let's do this. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I watched Ralphie a lot coming up, and uh, Ralphie, I just seen that motherfucker six shows in a row just beat on crowds until they're red-faced and look like they're going to puke, you know? Is and that he, how he was back then? Oh, like, dude, just, he was a killer, man. The guy was just a straight murderer, man. Because like, I've heard stories, but I, I've never met him. I've uh, never seen him live, you know? You would, you would go out there, and like, I was pretty funny, thought I was pretty good, and you'd go up there, and you'd have the set of your life, you know what I mean? It just like... Oh, I'll beat shit out of that crowd. I got them. And then 10 minutes after this motherfucker's on stage, nobody will remember who you are. Because <laughs> he's just murderer, man. He's just going to go there and beat the shit out of these people. And I literally, I mean, I've seen people throw up. I've seen people fall down. I've seen people knock, you know, spit their drink up. I've seen, I just seen him sitting there selling t-shirts as people walking out of the show and their faces are just red and pinched up because they've just been, you know, laughing so hard that he just like beat the hell out of them. That's a that's what I strive for every time I get on stage. Like I want to do that. I want to be the guy that leaves them just. I want your jaw to hurt on the way home. I want yeah. you like this motherfucker. You know, like and only a handful of people I've seen do it. Boy, he could just do it on cue. You know, every like I said, six shows in a row sold out. Bam, 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 bam. Is there anybody now that you think can do that? Oh, that's touchy. <laughs> <laughs> or that you've seen um, I don't see anybody has that kind of power like he did anymore um, it, it, it's different I see people with different kinds of strengths but I don't see anybody do it the way he did it nobody that I've watched can make me laugh like that and make me feel that way but there are people that can hit me hard and uh, Billy D. Washington's a killer. Oh, I, I love mean, Billy D. 
He's but he's like a Billy D. Washington's like a master class and how to hold the attention of the room and take them wherever you want them. It's not necessarily just for laughs. It's Billy D's trying to get a point across and take you on a journey. So it's a different kind of experience. Uh, straight murderer. Uh, the person I see now that really like in, gets my attention the best is Ali Sadiq. Uh, because it is amazing to me that motherfucker can sit in a chair and control a room like that. That is just, I'm so envious. I cannot sit down on stage to this day. I've, <laughs> I think I've sat down on stage one time in 15 years. I, I sit down and I don't feel like I have my juju anymore. And I feel like I've lost my power. Really? Uh, I have to stand up and hold that mic. Um, so when I watch Ali Sadiq have this command, you know, 400 person room and he's just, controlling them with a mic sitting comfortably in a chair and delivering these powerful punchlines and getting these huge, big, constant stream of laughs. Yeah, and enticing it's, them with the stories and yeah, bringing them in. Dude, yeah. it's fucking incredible, man. The guy yeah. is, I, I think he might be a witch. I don't know. The dude's really <laughs> incredible, man. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of what he does. I He's a wizard. That, yeah, some kind of warlock or some shit. I don't know. Somebody, He's magical. Somebody taught him some... That's what he learned in jail. Yeah. <laughs> Some fucking Santeria or whatever the fuck that shit is. Yeah. I don't know if he's got a chicken egg in that chair with him when he goes on stage, but that dude's doing some witchcraft. It's incredible, man. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, uh, I tell you this, uh, you know, everybody loves to tout Andy Huggins. And uh, I grew, I came up working with Andy Huggins. Andy's been around as far as, you know, since I, you know, long before yeah. I started. I had him on the podcast recently. So I always got opportunities to work with Andy, but what Andy, you put Andy in a 30 minute spot with a receptive crowd. Mm-hmm. Fuck you for trying to follow that. <laughs> I, did. I took him, he went with me to Lake Jackson out of the winery and those are my kind of people. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's an easy hit for me. Uh, but Andy went up there for 30 minutes, beat the piss out of them people. I was like, Jesus Christ, dude, we're just in Lake Jackson. Settle down, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> There's no bookers here. Fucking chill. This is, we're, not, we're not trying to get Grammy Awards. We're in fucking Lake Jackson at a fucking winery out in the middle of nowhere. Can you just, just phone the last part in? Fuck, dude. And Andy's over here staying in ovation fucking 20 minutes into his set. And I'm like, what? God damn, boy. He, was a, he, he had murdered this. He's people, a master. Man. He's a master of his craft. I'm up there like, woohoo, my kids don't matter. I've never had to reset a room so hard. It, like I had to like slow down the tempo because I can't keep up with that one-liner shit. I'm very slow. Yeah. And I, I had to literally go up there and consciously tell myself, be slower. <laughs> and reset the room for a minute, for a couple minutes, till I had had some kind of grip over the situation and could go through the show again. Oh, uh, I was like, this motherfucker, he showed up, whooped my ass, man. It, it was no different than if we'd got out of the truck and he picked up his cane, just beat the shit out of me with it. It was, it was like, fuck. <laughs> Well, how do you feel about bringing features that are are good that could possibly like make you work for it? Oh, that's why I take Will everywhere I go. I want somebody to whip my ass. So yes, I think it inspires you to work harder. I yes. think I think I write better, and I 
I push harder when I get up if if there's pressure on me. Um, and I want people that buy a ticket to see the show to really get their money's worth. One of the best compliments I got uh, from the improv show I did just recently, which was like, we had 128 sold on Wednesday night, and like, I only knew four people in that crowd. Everybody else from TikTok. I sold those tickets over TikTok, and then, you know, except Nabby's family had come. Mm. The rest of those tickets we sold on TikTok. So it was really crazy. But one of the best compliments I got in the days after that, I had Abby open. Um, Will follow Abby like 15 minutes, and Jesse Saldana do 15 minutes, and then me come in and close the show. That's a good lineup. Dude. That's a great lineup. You kidding lineup. me? I was watching yeah. these motherfuckers like, I have made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I felt that way when I was watching Abby. I was watching Abby like, I have made a fucking mistake. You know? And then Will Loden took that stage and just annihilated that goddamn place. Yeah. I mean, he's been on the road a bunch with Josh Stokes and everything, so yeah. his shit is super polished Oh, yeah, right when he now. came back and I saw him, I was yeah. like, whoa. Dude, he, he's got his shit down to a science right now. Yeah. And Will took that stage from them happy people at the Improv and whipped their ass. And then Saldana, you know, they were on the road together. So Saldana's really tight and oh, on yeah. point. And Saldana came in there and just did his thing and killed it. And I was like, all right, well, you're going to work for it tonight, motherfucker. <laughs> you know? and, uh, but I like that because one of the best compliments I got after that show was for days I was getting uh, hundreds of comments and stuff on TikTok. Like, um, people like, Oh my God, all of you were so good. That was an incredible lineup. That was a great show. And they started following Will and they started following Abby and Jesse. And like, that's the, that's when you know you put a good show together. So I always yeah. want that. I always, I don't like the, um, there was a lot of dudes. When I first became a feature, I had a hard time getting feature gigs because a lot of guys didn't want to, and I'm not trying to be a braggart. I'm just telling you, it's just the fucking way it is. A lot of people didn't want to follow me because I hit hard. Yeah. And, you know, there's there were all these guys getting picked up to go on the road with these other dudes, and guys are like, "Oh yeah, no, I like you, but I don't want to fucking follow you every night." I ain't trying to work it goddamn hard, you know. So I don't I don't like that mentality. Thankfully, I was around some really cool headliners like Tommy Drake and Billy D that would never in a million years give a fuck how strong you were. They'll just follow you and do. Dude, their I love thing. Tommy so much. Tommy give a shit how good you do. I mean, yeah. he he's like, Hey, great job. But he's going to go out there and do Tommy. He's Drake. He ain't worried about yeah. Caroline Picard. She don't give a shit how hard you hit that crowd. She's going to go out there and do Caroline Picard. Billy D same damn way. And Ralphie, of course, the same damn way. Slade. Slade. One of the best compliments I ever got from a headliner in my life is me and Slave were doing Hyenas in Dallas. And I just, one of those, I mean, it was having good sets consistently all week. But uh, I think it was like the Saturday early show or something. I just beat the piss out of that crowd for 25. I mean, just put it to them. And uh, come on stage. And I walked in. I would always, Slave would always be waiting for me in the back and come walking up. And I was like, you know, like that. And yeah. He goes, Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> the best compliment I ever got from a headliner. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Just walk by. Nah, I gotta work. God damn it. <laughs> but that's the way I felt about Abby and Will and Jesse that night. So I, I much prefer. One of the reasons I love working with Will is Will is strong and ever. Will can do a bar show. Will can do a clean show. Will can do a club show. 
and he can perform well in all those environments. And so I always like having him in front of me because I know one, the crowd's going to enjoy the show. Yeah. Two, I might have to work harder to follow this motherfucker. You know. Yeah. But it's still going to be a good show no matter oh, what. Yeah. 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 But you want some fire? I, I like some fire in front of me. Now I see a lot of comics make mistakes in that situation. So one of my things is when somebody just destroys it in front of me, especially in a contest setting or anything like that. I just try to take the energy and ride it. And so I, I, I usually acknowledge them. Like, y'all give it up. Just beat the shit out of y'all. Yeah. You know, give them some acknowledgement. Because one, it's psychology. It tells this group of people that you're about to have to try to make like you, that you like the same thing they like. Yeah. And that's always a good first starter for, you know, that's psychology. That's salesmanship 101. Uh, obviously. Like, yeah. Oh, he likes the same kind of things I like. I like this guy. You yeah. know, that's how we got stuck with Donald Trump. <laughs> many people did that shit. But it's that. It's a, it's an easy, simple mentality, and it works. And uh, I often see comics go up and, like, somebody kill it in front of them. And they'll try to make a joke or riff off of them that's maybe kind of negative or shit on them a little yeah. bit. And you watch the crowd like, well, he doesn't like what I like. Fuck this guy. <laughs> they, they turn that yeah. motherfucker off in their head, you know? Like, you can't... If somebody bombs in front of you, the best thing to do is just not acknowledge it at all and go into your set and do your fucking act. And then, uh, unless you've got something really funny, unless you've got something really funny up your sleeve about it, I try not to touch it. I just jump in with a, a start with a joke and end with a joke. Yeah. Just go on and do my thing. But if somebody kills it in front of me, I don't usually ever try to riff off of them. Listen, I mean, like I said, if you've got some line that's really killer and it's not going to be a negative. Well, that adds to whatever just yeah. happened. Yeah. So if you got something positive you can do that's funny, by all means, do that. Get that laugh. But most times, I just try to acknowledge it like, that's bad, motherfucker. I liked it, too. And let's go. You know what I mean? Like, that's the easiest way to deal with it. Uh, I mean, so from from when you started to now, like, were you always... What Did you get good quick? Or did it take you some time to, like, just understand it? Because you said you won second place a month in on a comedy contest. So I'm sure, like, you already, like, were put in the fire. Immediately, yeah. The very first time I did open mic, I ate a dick. It was glorious. Um, uh, <laughs> I had this terrible joke about being a cancer astrology sign, and I would do the MC Hammer. Day. It was so fucking hideous. Oh, wait, you're cancer? Yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I'm July and July sixteenth. So I, I had this whole joke about that, about how it was the dumbest zodiac sign, and what the fuck could a crab do? It was, it was horrid. <laughs> and uh and just ate a dick spectacularly and uh i did not come back i i actually i had to take an oil field job up in denver and so i spent some time up in denver i was like two months in denver doing a turnaround and i found an open mic when i was in denver and i started just going to this open mic and watching and i went and watched like two weeks in a row and third week i went up and did five minutes of new stuff i'd written and got some really good laughs and was like, all right. And then I had to come back to Houston and I was like, well, fuck it. So I just started coming back to open mic and just hitting it every time. Boom, boom, boom. And I was doing well pretty much from that point on. And it was like a month later I joined the contest and did well with that. And after that I was getting booked on paid shows. And I, uh, there was a period like a year in where I started trying to write 
I don't know. I, I, I guess I decided I wanted to be Bill Hicks or some shit like that. And I started trying to write stuff like that. And it didn't go well. And I realized that's not me. That's not who the fuck I am. You know, yeah, so yeah. I, I backed off from that. But I, I was fortunate that uh, things went really well for me right off the bat. I mean, I, I didn't have the mechanics and the knowledge yet, but I clearly had some kind of natural ability. Yes. But I grew up in a family of storytellers. You know, my favorite thing was back porch, my dad, my uncles, and them all telling stories, trying to get the biggest laugh. That's all it was around my family and my mom's family very much the same way. So I grew up around all these hillbilly storytellers and grew up listening to Jerry Clower and all these rural humorists and shit and brother Dave Gardner. So that was kind of already implanted in my brain. And I was kind of a chubby kid through school, so I was always funny. That was always a good self-defense for chubby to keep him from fucking with you if i could write a better fat joke about me then you weren't gonna fuck with me about it because i'm gonna get more laughs than you <laughs> yeah you know what i mean there's nothing a bully hates more you get yeah. more laughs than that motherfucker. you beat him to the punch yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so <laughs> fucking football player shit try to make some fucking fat joke about me and i'd fucking destroy with my joke I'm like fuck you <laughs> you know what i mean like walk that shit off so so I think a lot of that all kind of, you know, I, I'm with Andy. Like, I don't think every comic is damaged and abused. I, I happen to come from kind of a damaged family and a bunch of shit, but I don't think that really has that much to do with comedy. I think comedy mostly for me was growing up around these storytellers who told great stories, and I was in awe of that and just always loved that. I agree. I agree with you because, like, uh, from what I've seen with a lot of people, like, there are some comics that I've had great lives – but they still do comedy. They still want to be funny. They still want to get something out of it. And for me, I don't do comedy because I'm damaged. Because I, I have had a crazy like life and stuff like that. Like A lot of things have happened. But I do comedy because I love it. Because I love to laugh. And I love to make people laugh. Yeah. I, I truly... One of the things Andy says a lot is that I think I was born to be a comic. And I feel very much the same way. It's the only time I really feel like I know what the fuck I'm doing. Yes. Yes. You know, everything else in life... I'm a, I'm an excellent, I'm a master carpenter by, you know, by standards. Uh, I grew up working on cars, I've built houses, I've done all these things, but everything else in life, I feel like I'm faking it at. I, I have imposter syndrome, huge. I mean, I, I can be talking to a room full of contractors about how we're going to proceed on a job. And I'm still like, God, I hope they don't find out I'm a fraud. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I hope they don't find out I don't really know what I'm doing. You know, if I can, and I, the same way, you know, I could be building something for somebody like, God, I hope they don't find out. I don't know how to fucking do this. I'm just <laughs> doing the way I think I know how to do it. You know, it's like, you I have that hammer and stuff. And, yeah, <laughs> and I've always been good at those things and, you know, working on cars and shit like that. And guys will talk to me about cars. Like, yeah, I don't know if I, I hope they don't find out. I don't know, really. I just know what I think I know here. <laughs> I have that imposter syndrome about everything else in my life, and I never feel that way about stand-up. I never feel that way about being on stage. So I'm the same way. Like, whenever I'm talking to somebody, and they start talking about cars, and they get really specific, I'm just like, yeah, mm-hmm, I know what you're talking about, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. <laughs> I usually do, but I don't know how. And it's like a, it's like a weird... You know, some of my best friends, you know, most most of my really close friends are, you know, contractors and car guys. And, you know, I grew up in a junkyard and I grew up building cars with my dad. So I know the shit, but I just, I never feel like, like my buddy David, you can ask my buddy David anything about any kind of car and he can just tell you. He can explain it. he feels confident and he'll stand on a hill and die on it over his knowledge. And I will tell you something about a car, but if you're arguing with me, I'm like, well, fuck, you might be right on (laughs) it. 
I don't have anything I feel like standing on a hill and dying about except for laughing and telling jokes. But when it comes to comedy, you're like, nah, I got this. Yeah, you know, I will defend my approach to comedy to anybody, any given time, and never feel bad about it. Uh, One of the big, you know, debates always is the laugh per minute. And I'm just one of those people that I understand laughs per minute has its place. And auditions, especially when you got short time, yeah. and TV shows, I get that. I understand that. But as far as a live stand-up show, you can take your laugh per minute and shove it up your ass. Yeah. I don't give when a it comes to like a headliner set, like you need I, time. To... I will get I will get my beating in, and if you yeah. can follow it, good for you. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like because I'm just telling you, my crowd's gonna have a good time. I'm gonna get my hits, and I may not get you know uh, six laughs per minute. But goddamn, that laugh they're going to get at the end of eight minutes is going to be a murderous laugh. Oh, yeah. you know? so they're going to remember that. I don't buy into that theory as far as like live performing. But, you know, it's a, and that's one of those things I've argued with a number of comics about and probably always will. And, to me, it doesn't matter. Like, if the audience is laughing, if the, if the audience is having a great experience, if the audience thinks, like, like, that's one of the best shows I've ever seen, I think that's all that matters. Yeah, not one audience member comes in the club and goes, I better get six laughs per minute, <laughs> or I'm going to the front door and asking my motherfucking money back. If I don't get six laughs per minute, fuck this guy. Nobody that guy only that. had three laughs per minute. I want my money back. Yeah. God damn it. This motherfucker gave me ten laughs per minute. My jars. Fuck this. Give me my money back. You know what I mean? Like, nobody does that. So it's just... You know, that's stuff for industry nerds, and exactly. that's fine. And yeah, exactly. That, that's the only people that care are people that are in the industry and, like, so and I, blinded And I, I, I decided, it. you know, no matter what my approach is, I'm done with the casting calls. I'm done with the cattle calls. I'm not doing that shit anymore. I am going to keep making art until I make some good enough art that somebody wants it. And that's, that's all it's going to be. Like, I'm doing those sketches right now. I'm going to do some longer form stuff and I'm going to make some shit so good that people can't fucking ignore it and fuck all that other bullshit. Fuck that standing in line to go up for three minutes to three people in a room who are going to judge you based on some bullshit that you don't care about. You know, I'm just not interested in it. I'm 45 years old. I figured out what I want out of life and it's not that. But so the thing is, once you figure out what you wanted, you're doing it and it's working out. Yeah. So, like, you just keep doing what you're doing because obviously something's going right. Yeah, yeah. It's all uh, – everything for me is going according to the plan that whatever is setting the plans for me has decided. And I tell you this, every time I try to buck the system and go against – every time I just decide that, oh, I'm going to do this and other shit starts popping up and getting in the way and it gets harder and harder and harder until at some point something puts the brakes on it. And then the minute I get back into this groove of doing the shit I want to do and the things I really care about, everything starts going smooth again. And so there's a, you know, whether you believe in God or whatever it is, every time I buck my path, my path goes, no, motherfucker, get back over here, get back in your lane, do what it is you do. People like it. There's a reason for it. And you love doing it. So get back in your lane. And every time I do that, things smooth out and I make big steps ahead. So that, that's really my ridiculous theory about it. Something's driving me. I don't know what it is, but, uh, that's just a testament to I'm your hard to work, your dedication. <laughs> I mean, but it, it's, it's everything that, that you put into it is actually like rewarding you now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. There's definitely that, that, uh, you know, comedy, one of the reasons I do like building things 
and uh, doing that kind of work and stuff is because if I set out, if I go, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame out this apartment today. Well, at the end of the day, I have a result. Mm-hmm. I'm like, God damn, look at all my hard work. Comedy is very hard in that there's all this hard work and all this hard work. And if you ever see any results, they're usually a long way away. And then every once in a while you hit a lick and you're like, God damn, look at all my hard work, you know, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> so true. it's, it's so, it's so far yeah, away. So Lee. one of the things that helps me is having a hobby of like working on things and doing things because I get those, I get those results. I need that. Look what the fuck I created this thing. I yeah. did this thing. And then I can go, keep tinkering away over here in the comedy shop and not have yeah. to worry about results. Well, at least with TikTok, you can see the views. Oh, that, that tells you right then and there. It's like, okay, people are actually watching this. And TikTok is so much more immediate than any other social media. Like I can put a video on on Instagram and I can't tell you for a week how it's doing. You know, it's going to take about a week to figure out if it's hitting or not. Cause okay. So. And YouTube's the same. You put it on YouTube. Two months down the road, that video might go crazy, but it's not its not going to do anything that first day unless you have just a shit ton of followers. Uh, but I could put a video on TikTok, and I can tell you within 20 minutes whether it's doing well or not. Yeah. I can tell you if it's going to go. I, I can predict whether it's going to go viral almost 100% of the time within the first 30 minutes of releasing that video. So I just made a new TikTok and I started posting videos and maybe 100 to 500 views at the most. Mm-hmm. But I posted a video on Instagram uh, like a week or two ago. It was like a small clip, like a four minute clip uh, during the first couple of days, 3000 at the most. Right. But then after like a week, it hit 60,000. Yeah, it was crazy. I was it's just, it's just out of nowhere. Just it, it's like the weirdest thing. I've, I've had that insight. I've never had any hit 60 grand on Instagram. I've never had numbers like that yeah. there. Uh, but I had one that hit like 12,000 and I swear to God, that video had been posted for like a month and had not done shit. Really? And then all of a sudden it got thrown into reels one day and fucking hit like, and I was like, what the hell? You know, and the same thing at YouTube. I've had stuff posted on YouTube and never did shit. And then, uh, one of the Adderall story, yeah. I have the clip. It's like a 10 minute bit and I put it on Reddit and I just put like a clip of that. I didn't even put the full story on Reddit. I just put a clip of like, if you want to watch the rest, go to YouTube. Dude, that video was up for like a month, nothing. And then in one day, like 1600 views, you know, just jumped up out of nowhere and all kind of comments and stuff. So yeah. It's wild, but TikTok, I can put something out on TikTok and I can tell you within 30 minutes. Yeah. And I've been wrong just a handful of times. Um, there's been a few of them that I put out on there that they hit where I knew they would be like in the 50, 60,000 range, but I thought that was going to be the end of it. And then the next morning, for some reason, they'll take off again. And, you know, uh, one of me and Abby's uh, HR sketches, it when I first released it, you know, like 60,000 views, and I was like, well, that died. That didn't go yeah. anywhere. I was, so I was like reading the analytics, trying to figure out what what it was. Like, because in my analytics, I can see where people stopped watching, like the average time people watched it. And so I could, that helps me go and look and go, well, what is there not enough punchlines there? Is there not enough, you know, what do I need to fix uh, about this to make this yeah. better? And literally was reading the analytics on the video the next morning, trying to figure out why it failed when it went viral. 
like, I was like getting all these fucking notifications. I was like, what the fuck is happening? What do I got taken off over here? And I, so I shut down the analytics, go over here, and all of a sudden it's at 890,000 views. I'm like, all right, fuck them analytics. You know, <laughs> waste my time reading those. Well, whatever I got right, I got right. And uh, shit, let it go. I guess it just release. And I experiment with releasing at different times of the day. And I find my best videos hit about 6 o'clock p.m. If I release them between 5.30 and 6 o'clock p.m. Because most of my followers and the people that are drawn to my stuff are like working blue collar class. People just, you know, roofers and, you know, people just working folks. Yeah. So where my videos go crazy is right about the time they get home from work and get on the shitter. Ah, <laughs> it's that after work. It's that after work decompression shit. You know what I mean? Like you've had a day and you just need a minute to clear your head out. And yeah, you're also probably a little impacted. You gotta get rid of this, and that's when my videos go crazy. These dudes, I literally had this dude. It was the funniest shit. Me and Rachel and the, the kids. We were um, were we at McDonald's? Yeah, we were at McDonald's. And uh, there's this dude, Hispanic dude, and he's kind of a big dude. And, he kept looking at me, and then he pulled up his phone, fuck around, and he looked at me again. And I was like, what is this up with this motherfucker? And he finally walked up. He goes, hey, are you the TikTok guy? And I, I was like, we And he, I said, I'm on TikTok guy. He goes, you know the boots and the trucks? And I was like, yeah, yeah. He goes, man, I sit on the shitter till my legs fall asleep watching your videos, which is... <laughs> It's the weirdest thing for a grown man to say to you in front of your family ever, but also this incredibly huge compliment, like the cockles of my heart warmed, you know, I was like, thank you, you know, that's like the most, that's the most, I'm glad I'm making your legs fall asleep when you shit because I'm so funny, like it's the most vulnerable compliment somebody can give you, but also a really weird conversation to have in the McDonald's, you know what I mean? Yeah. well, I mean, I feel it's it's a great compliment because that's the most intimate place for a person is yeah, like, taking a shit. So the and fact it's about that as an honest thing you can say to a dude, but I'm like, God damn, maybe don't tell me that again if we see each other again. You know what I mean? Like, if there's anybody out there who wants to compliment me, maybe just, hey, I like your shit. Every time you know I take I mean? a shit, I watch you, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was a, it was a weird thing because I instantly was like, oh, thanks. And then I was like, it was a weird thing to say in the McDonald's, dude. <laughs> Did he give you any like free fries or an extra burger? Oh, he was on his way out the door. You know, uh, we were we were already eating, but uh, he he was like, hey, "Can I get a picture with you?" And I was like, "Fuck yeah, man! Uh, go tell everybody I'm the guy you laugh at while you shit." You know, like <laughs> yeah. so it was a cool moment. It was like, nothing impresses my twelve year old. Right? They could give a fuck. I do comedy. They could give a fuck about. They did watch my special. Um, because I talk about them being non-binary in it and everything. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I wanted, I try to be really open with them. And so they, they did sit and watch special with me and they really liked the joke and they really liked the way I approached it. And, um, but they could just, they just, they don't really get too excited about it. Uh, they, you know, I'll be like, they're like, Hey, what are you doing tonight? Daddy? And I'm like, Oh, I got this really big show and I'm open for this. And they're like, Oh, okay. Back to their fucking video game, you know, and they just give a shit about it. Uh, but they don't know. They they don't know. No, what's you going know. On, but you know? Uh, the the tick that that dude kind of impressed them that somebody just like recognized me in the McDonald's. Really? They were like, "How did that guy know you?" And I was like, "Well, from my TikTok video." Like, well, that's just so crazy that some dude would just know you from that. And I was like, "Well, he doesn't know me. He just saw me. He knew yeah. that I made these things." And 
then um, when I got my name put up at the improv, they got kind of excited about that. But other than that, they don't give a fuck, and they don't really think I'm that funny. I think know? that's good, though. <laughs> I think that's good because it keeps you grounded. Oh, I do, I do, too. I'm constantly trying to make that kid laugh. That kid doesn't think anything I do is funny. <laughs> <laughs> and the older they get, the less funny they fucking think I am, you know? And uh, my son, like, uh, my son is very much into physical comedy, so my son's an easy laugh, right? Yeah. If I fall down, that kid's going to lose his shit, you know? <laughs> there's a there's a video I did where I was plugging in all these old appliances, and one of them actually shocked the fuck out of me, and I just happened to catch it on camera while I was doing some shit over this uh, property we're taking over. Uh-huh. My son watches that shit on repeat. He thinks that is the funniest video I've ever made. <laughs> Hey, Daddy, let me see you get electrocuted again. Hey, Daddy, should I watch the video of you getting electrocuted? He thinks that's, that is bar done. His favorite shit he's ever seen, you know. I got to turn him on Three Stooges. He's an easy laugh, but Aubrey, man, nothing I do makes that kid. I have to work hard to make that kid laugh. They're no easy laugh. Rachel's not easy laugh. My wife's not an easy laugh either, though. But Rachel, you know, watched years of bad comedy at open mics and was also yeah. a talent buyer and had to watch all these tape back in the day when you just got like a UPS shipment of VHS tapes oh. of comics and you had to sit there and watch them to determine if was worth a damn. And you know, so Rachel has seen so much bad. You, you never want to see anything like Rachel go oh. through the comedy section on Netflix. Shit, 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 <laughs> garbage. Why are people still buying tickets to see this guy? That just like, she's such a harsh judge, you know, of that kind of stuff. So she's, yeah. she's a really hard laugh, you know. So what, what did she say about your special? Did she think it was good? Uh, she she loved it. She, she liked the vulnerability and the honesty of it. Uh, she knows I'm a huge fan. Uh, Richard Pryor is like one of my big influences. And so my favorite part, thing about Richard Pryor is very vulnerable and very honest on stage. Yeah. And I strive for that. That's why I talk about personal things. So I talk about these things that are impactful to me because I think it's things people can relate to the easiest. I don't have to come up with topics. All I got to do is talk about real shit. And so she really enjoyed that aspect of it. And she of course knows all the jokes about her. And so, um, She's heard all those a million times. She uh, she often is my ghostwriter. Me and her will sit out on the porch, and I'll come up with an idea or start bouncing something off of her, and she'll um, she'll give it. She's got a couple taglines in that special, uh, especially the one where I'm talking about my mom's funeral, and uh, she's got a couple tags in that joke. Two of the tags in that joke, Rachel wrote. I, I was gonna say because like she's she's. Watch comedy. She had to watch all those. Oh, videos she's funnier than I ever she's, dreamed. I'm of pretty sure she's like <laughs> half a comic, right? Yeah, yeah. Rachel's yeah. fucking funny, man. Rachel, Rachel's a writer. She's an incredible writer, and uh, she's fucking funny as fuck. So me and her sit there and bounce shit off of her, and uh, yeah, she's definitely got some tags and probably even a couple parts of premises in those fucking things. That's uh, a beautiful thing, though. Oh yeah, yeah. It's excellent to have that, and and I also, you know, she's my person. I can sit there and bounce a joke off. She's like, ah, it's a little problematic, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're breaching on something there. It might get you in trouble. Like, are you sure? She's like, yeah. Well, go look it up and read about it. And I'll go read it. Like, oh goddamn, that's problematic. All right, you better, <laughs> better avoid that topic because 
I'm not interested in being problematic. I sound like this, so people assume I'm racist. People assume I'm homophobic. People assume I'm misogynistic already because I sound like because I have this voice. Yeah. And I can't coach. This is the voice I got. I don't do impressions. This is who the fuck I am all the time. So I have to make sure that nothing I say can be construed as that. And I'm not that kind of person. You know, I mean, I was raised by people like that, and I definitely grew up. And and there was definitely a time period where I was not a very good person. I don't feel like, but I have to work really hard to make sure nothing I say can be construed as like, I'm this kind of guy. Cause I never want that. Do you, do you feel like you have to be like that because of the way everything is now? No, I just feel like, um, well, you talk about your kid being non-binary. So like things have changed. Yeah, definitely things have changed, but. And people are more open and more honest and, and seeing things. For, I think we need to be, you know. I don't want my kids struggling to figure out. Look, they're 12. They're non-binary. Uh, whatever, you know, I, I have a basic understanding that what it what that is, but I'm also a Gen Xer, so it's a little fuzzy. Yeah. But I just try to be kind and listen to them when they tell me what it is they identify with it, what it is they are, because... If I if I'm kind and I listen to my child now, and I take them at face value and I try to have real conversations with them, when they get to be twenty and shit really goes off the fucking rails and they're dealing with some serious crazy fucking life shit, they're still gonna come talk to me and have some faith that I'll yeah. listen to them and help them work through it and understand. So a lot of it's about building the foundation now that. No, I, I can't tell you I fully hundred percent understand everything going on with uh, the gender stuff right now but i just try to be kind to everybody i meet because everybody's going through something and i don't i'm not one to tell anybody who the fuck they are or what's possible or what's not possible and i just i have no interest in being a part of that conversation i do have an interest in being part of the conversation of hey i'm a kind dude and whatever it is you feel like you are i fuck you tell me what you are and i'll believe you unless you show me otherwise you know what i mean like that's just how i feel about shit yeah and uh if you if you want to be a she, great. If you want to be a they, great. If you want to be a he or whatever the other, I know there's other ones that I don't know. Where are you going to be? Great. You tell me what you are. I'll believe you. Most of all, just tell me your name and that's what I'll call you. Mm, you know what yeah. I mean? That's my, that's my easy trick. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like just a, I just try to learn people's name and then I just call you by your name and there's no confusion. You know, there's never any chance of fucking that up. Has so. anybody ever corrected you? I, I had a conversation one night in a convenience store, um, actually in Conroe, believe it or not. And the person I thought I was dealing with, uh, just, appearance sakes only appeared to be a young man and so I think I referred to him as sir and they quickly turned around and were like I'm not a man and I was like oh my bad I'm sorry (laughs) you know just like immediately like fuck I had no idea I'm sorry and they're like oh it's okay it happens all the time I was like well it's not okay but I'm really sorry I did it and uh they were like, oh, well, thank you for that. And then that was pretty much the end of it. But it was like it was like one of those moments where I was like, oh, that felt, it was, I didn't like the way that felt. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, 
I don't want that person going home feeling some kind of way because a fucking two-second interaction with this dickhead hillbilly. <laughs> to me, I, honestly, I don't think they were thinking that. Like they said, it happens all the time. Yeah. So like, probably, probably yeah. not. But I, I do try to be empathetic to people, and I do try to be kind. And that's that's my big thing. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you're a dickhead, I don't care what your gender is. I'm going to treat you like a fucking dickhead. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't care if you're fucking disabled. I don't care what the fuck it is. If you're a dickhead, you're going to get treated like a dickhead. You yeah. know? Uh, I, I had a friend for many years who was in a wheelchair, but he was an asshole. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I'll tell you this. I punched a motherfucker in a wheelchair one time because he was an asshole in a wheelchair and he had it coming. Well, what happened? <laughs> Oh, he's just being an asshole, and uh, he broke the window of my truck, uh, just throwing a fit, being a dick, threw something at my truck, broke the window. All right, I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> yeah. oh, and the next day we were cool, but I was yeah. like, dude, you're being a dick, man. Did he not, he not expect it because he was in a wheelchair? He's like, oh, he's not going to punch No, because he got away. So I knew the dude before he was in the wheelchair, right? Uh-huh. And he was an asshole. And then he got put in the wheelchair, and all of a sudden everybody, like, everybody that knew he was an asshole all of a sudden were like, Oh well, you know he's, he's, you know, like that. But he bullshit. was an asshole before. Yeah, but so. like, like, no, no, this guy was always a dickhead, you know, like. And uh, everybody's like, well, yeah, but he's in a wheelchair now. You can't just go around calling people wheelchair dickheads. And I was like, well, no, you know, I'm not going around just calling people wheelchair. I'm saying this dickhead in the wheelchair right here. <laughs> I don't care if he's in a wheelchair. You know, he's a dick and. uh so we were at like a kind of like an outdoor party, like a bonfire type event, and everybody was drunk, and and he started throwing a fit, and people would just let him get away with it because he was in a wheelchair and he mm-hmm. was being an asshole to people, and then he picked up a rock and throwed it and knocked the window out of my truck, and I was like, oh no, motherfucker! <laughs> so I just walked right over there in front of everybody, punched him in the face, and everybody was like. <gasps> And he started, like, trying to punch me back, and I was just, like, walking away from his wheelchair, like, fuck you. <laughs> I was like, you still One act step. like a hard ass. Like, just settle down, dude. I'll fucking knock you out of that goddamn chair. Stop breaking people's shit. Stop being a dick to people. And next day, me and him were totally cool again, but it was just, but everybody, for weeks, I was a motherfucker. I'll tell you that. Everybody's like, I can't believe you punched that fucking wheelchair. That was pretty chicken shit, Longmire. And I was like, yeah. Say what you will, man. <laughs> a dickhead's a dickhead. I don't care what what else is going on with him. But. So after that incident, did he learn his lesson? Was he nicer or was he still just an asshole? No, he was still a huge raging asshole uh, to a lot of people, but not to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some people. I'm not a huge fan of physical violence, and I don't use uh, I don't use physical violence to punish my children. I don't I don't put my hands on my children. I don't use that as a tool. But I do believe there are some people who are so far gone on this planet that the only way to get their attention is some people just need an ass whooping. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you can walk around. You can pretty much go to the comedy club anytime you want and walk through the comedy club and listen to conversations. And I can tell you who's had an ass whooping and who hasn't. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there's a certain type of person that's never had to think about what it's like to be on the ground and have their... Have, have the shit knocked out of them a little bit. Yeah. And you can tell by the way they run their mouth and the way they talk. And then there's other people you talk, they, they're they still having fun, but you could tell that at some point somebody put hands on them when things went too far and they, they know where that limitation is, you know. Yeah. So I've definitely had somebody do it to me and definitely been a part of doing it to somebody else. So 
it's a you can tell that, but you can tell the people have never had that happen. They've never yeah. just had anybody just. But okay, so the one thing about nowadays is like people don't get into altercations like that. But I feel like it's needed. It, Sometimes it's needed. I sort of miss the. Uh, there's a certain. There's a certain healthy, uh, healthy exertion when it comes to like fisticuff or a little. You know what I mean, like. And you'll hear this a lot from old dudes, and I'm no exception. Me and my friends didn't go get guns and shoot each other. We had access to guns. I My dad had guns all over the house. I grew up with guns, grew up shooting guns. I'm not saying there isn't a gun problem. I think there are some things that need to change. But we didn't go get guns and shoot each other. But we would whip each other's ass in the middle of the street. Yeah. And there was bullying, and there was all that stuff was still going on. But... I can I can remember and I lost plenty of fights, but I can remember enough times getting in an altercation with somebody that the next day everything was okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody lived to fight again. There was just a, it was like that speech in uh, Friday. Everybody lived to fight again. There was a there was an ass whooping and you walked it off, and the next day everybody just figured it out. I don't know when the conversation changed. I don't know when the rules of that changed, but I I think there was a certain level of healthiness about that. Because yeah. one, everybody lived, and two, you kind of figured out who, you know, where you stood, what your station was, you know. And maybe if you're somebody that wasn't very good at fighting, kept your mouth shut from then on. Yeah. Or maybe if you're somebody who could take an ass whooping, maybe not necessarily good at fighting, you kept running your mouth. I don't know, but everybody yeah. found their their footing and their station at that point. Yeah. Or if you couldn't fight, be funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> very much. Richard Pryor says that he said I was funny in prison because I was. Kept them from thinking about kicking me in the ass or fucking me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it kept their mind off the booty. You make them laugh. And like, it, but that's the big thing. I feel like uh, bullying, I know it's a bad thing, but when I was growing up, I was bullied, and it made me a certain way. I, I feel like the same thing you just said. When somebody, You can tell when somebody's been hit before. You can never... The thing about bullying is, is there's always this conversation about how do we stop it. And the thing is, you just fucking can't yes you cannot stop bullying it's not necessarily good but you can't stop it there's no rule there's no law you're ever going to put in place and i'll give you an example when i first started doing videos on tiktok every once in a while it's it's usually boomers it's usually uh it's usually elder gen x to boomer men who don't understand how to have discourse and laugh at something or have a fucking sense of humor We'll come over there and like, oh, you made fun of my truck? Well, you're fat. Fuck you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so there was a lot of that shit going on, which is a form of bullying, right? And I said, well, here's the cool thing about TikTok is they got these comment filters, and I'll just filter the words fat and overweight and tubby and lard ass, and I'll filter these words out, and you won't be able to bully me like this anymore. And then the motherfuckers <laughs> come back and start calling me words in Spanish. You know, I was like, God damn. <laughs> So then I had to go learn part of Spanish to figure out what all the Spanish words for fat are. Manny Parado and Gordo and all this fucking shit. And and like, out that. And then a motherfucker showed up and called me porcine. And I had to look that motherfucker up. I was like, this motherfucker just called me a porcupine? And I had to look up porcine. That's just like a fancy word for fat. And I was like, God damn. Like, how bad do you want to bully me that you showed up with a motherfucking uh, thesaurus and a dictionary and playing like Wordle with friends to talk shit to me. <laughs> like, you can't stop bullying. That's yeah, not how it works. Gonna happen. So the only thing you can do, and especially if you have children, is try to make them strong enough and resilient enough to see bullying when it's happening to them 
and be able to fucking overpower it or withstand it and get through it. Um, and that's the, that's the only the only thing we can do to fix bullying is to make people more resilient so that the bullies have less power because the the yeah. the truth remains that you can take the power away from the bully. And the, you, the you, thing is, it starts, you got to have a certain amount of strength. But it starts at home, so that's yeah. When I start having kids, I'm gonna bully the hell out of them, <laughs> so that they can be resilient. Yeah, I always say when my kids are getting bullied at school, you know, and it's me because they're homeschooled. <laughs> but I'm worried they're not gonna get enough of it at home. So every once in a while they walk through the room, I just knock their books out of their hands. Pick it up, nerd. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely you got to have that like you got to have that resilient. And, and the great thing about it is you know you can't legislate bully. No, you're never going to stop people from being bullied. But teaching people how to deal with bullying is where the strength lies. And yeah, if we yeah. focused our efforts on that in schools, in churches, in places where children are being taught. If we focus more on teaching people how to deal with being bullied and how to fight back against it and how to be more resilient about it. I think we'd see a much bigger change in society than what we're seeing trying to legislate bullying away. Cause I yeah. just think you're never going to do that. You know, and that example on TikTok is a perfect example. No matter how I change the rules, they would find a new way to do it. Exactly. Like, they would learn a different language yeah, just to bully just, you. That's hilarious. Yeah. It's like, fuck man. It's it, <laughs> just like, and it's not even good or creative bullying. Like I didn't forget I was fat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I have to tie my shoes every day. I'm aware of the work that goes into that. My Apple Watch goes into cardio. I know. I don't need you motherfuckers to tell me, you know. But <laughs> that shit can still get to you. It can still affect your mental health oh, if you let man. it. And so I had to find. So now, nowadays what I do is I just call them out. I'll make a video and reply to them. Call, I've got the microphone, motherfucker. Are you going to bully me? Fuck you, dog. <laughs> and I just fucking take them down. Like, and, and never be a dick or bully them back. Just take apart their comment and what they say and their approach to it. I'm like, God damn, dude, I hope you get some therapy one day to fix it. Whatever made you think it's okay to be like this. That kind of uh, shit. Because you, you can take the power back. You just got to figure out how to do it. So I grew up in that. I was like, once the internet came out, then cyberbullying became a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And like the biggest thing is like you're hiding behind a screen so you feel comfortable to say whatever. Oh, there's no better bully than an anonymous one. Exactly. Anonymity is the friend of the bully. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, bullies back in my day, they had to show up and swirl your head in the toilet on purpose. They had to look you in the eye and be shitty. You know, they were... They were a much more stronger bully. Bullies today just might be just some <laughs> fat fuck hiding in his mom's basement that's got nothing better to do than talk shit to Boomers. Boomers and late early uh, elder Gen X men, especially white ones. The, the I would say like 47 to 65-year-old white men really struggle with understanding how anonymity in the internet works. Really? Because these motherfuckers get themselves fired left and right, <laughs> get themselves in trouble left and right, saying stupid, racist, horrible, misogynistic <laughs> shit. And they think because they've changed their name, like, my name's P. Pella. And you're not going to know my name's yeah. Paul Pella. <laughs> they think because they've done the, the basics of anonymity that nobody's going to figure out yeah. who the fuck they are and they can just talk all this shit they want to talk. Like their LinkedIn know? profile is right next yeah, to Yeah, <laughs> That's the funniest shit to me. 
This is a dude would never say this shit to you in person. Never like, in a million years. Yeah, no, yeah. Like, if you and me were standing in a bar, you would no way you would make comments about my weight because yeah. I'd probably bust your ass. You know what I mean? Unless we were friends and it was, you know, it's different. Like, you know, being a Slater joke around or whatever, that's different. Yeah. You know, but uh, it's so funny to me. And they seem to be the group that struggles the hardest with that, with that. Not understanding that everything on the internet is forever, dickhead. And they say horrible shit. And you're like, okay. There's these uh, apps called uh, Next. There's this app out there. And it's kind of like Facebook for your neighborhood. And it's called Next Door. Next Door, yeah. Okay. So you you have that. Yeah. Uh, So Next Door has been really fun. Since me and my wife live in Montrose now, it's a lot calmer. There's a lot of Karens in there. There's a lot of... uh, middle-aged white women bitching about the neighborhood like leave this place isn't for you <laughs> it yeah. wasn't built for you it wasn't built with you in mind fuck on off back to katie where you'll find things to your liking you know what i mean <laughs> it's, it's, i'm sorry fucking denise fuck off to sugarland i'm sure you'll find things to your liking yeah. out there montrose is not for you yeah it's the oh there's dog shit on the corner and a homeless man sleeping well that's the way it's all this is the way fuck off <laughs> you know but when we lived up in Willis and we like lived in this lake community on Lake Conroe and oh, that next door was lit because it was nothing but just old white men saying horrible racist shit all the time. <laughs> and you just like, just like, I remember one day this, uh, there was a young black kid that lived at the front of the neighborhood, got a new dirt bike. And he did a lap around the neighborhood on the dirt bike. And instantly there's like 20 old white men. I think there's kids out here breaking into cars. I think there's like just oh, instantly shit. let their racist flag fly. The minute they saw a black kid on a new. I think I saw a black kid steal a new dirt bike. You know, just like. <laughs> and, and you're like, it's 2020. You know, you can't fucking do <laughs> Like it really gave you something because it wasn't like Facebook. And it's like. The fucked up thing about next door is these dudes say all this shit, but right by their profiles, you can see their address. Like, I can come <laughs> over to your house, man. I can come over to your house and talk to you about this right now. Like, oh, shit. it was a funny shit. And they were getting these huge fights on there and just say awful shit. And women come in there and, like, oh, that, that shit. I miss that next door app. I miss next door <laughs> app for Willis because. That was fucking good entertainment. I'd log on there once a day just to just to see some old fucking white guy let his freak flag fly and say some awful shit and be like, "Well, you're another asshole. I won't do business with." And now I know you, and I I didn't really fuck with it. I had one neighbor there that I really dug. He was a cool ass old dude, uh, but I didn't fuck with nobody else in that neighborhood because I've seen them say too much shit, and the women were just bad. They would just say some awful shit. They were kinder about it, but it was still awful. Yeah. Racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they, this guy would be like, Oh, I saw a black kid on this dirt bike. I think his black kid stole his dirt bike. And then, like, the white woman he lives with, his wife or whatever, coming there and, like, Well, a lot of them black kids don't have good homes. And, like, she's trying to be <laughs> kind, but she's also being racist at the same time. Like, you're like, God, you can't be this horrible. <laughs> it's just like, well, he doesn't know any better. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so very interesting that's funny oh my god <laughs> no. oh man well brother I, i'm gonna have to get out of here i didn't realize oh, yeah. how close it is getting the two I, oh yes yeah, it's, it's all good uh, deal with. do you have any plugs anything tiktok instagram 
Go check out my TikTok. Uh, if you hadn't seen The Wrecking Yard, watch The Wrecking Yard on YouTube. I highly recommend it. It's incredible. No. Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, go check that out. And, uh, you know, that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm putting my energies in those sort of things right now. And I'll have some more long-form comment, content come to YouTube soon. So, And uh, definitely tune in to the Whiskey Brothers every Monday night. Uh, uh, we have a lot of fun on that podcast, too. And it's a nice little roundtable sort of approach to things. All right, and you know where to catch me, Twitter, Instagram, The Jocosity, T-H-E-J-O-E-C-O-S-I-T-Y. Uh, I have two shows this week. Thursday, I'm at The Riot, Off the Dome, 7.30, and then after that, it's Thursday Laughs at The Secret Group, 8 o'clock. So you got a chance to catch me. I'm always at Axelrad every Monday. I appreciate y'all for listening, and thank you for being on the podcast, Jerry Wayne. Hell yeah, man. Thanks for having me, bro. All right, see y'all next time. <laughs>